Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today we'll be talking about the third stage of labor. There are critical physiological changes that happen with mom and baby immediately after birth that allow for bonding and a healthy transition from womb to world. What are they? How can they be supported? And how do interventions change the hormonal flow? Dr. Sarah Buckley is here to tell us more. Stay tuned. This episode of Birthful is brought to you by Natural Breastfeeding and their free quick start video which shows you a simple technique to prevent nipple pain and the easiest way to help your newborn latch and for you to produce enough milk for your baby. Go watch it at naturalbreastfeeding.com. This episode of Birthful is also brought to you by Megan Othling, a birth doula in Albuquerque, New Mexico, who is all about offering women the information and support they need to make their own empowered birth choices. Learn more at womenofvalorbirth.com. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros to inform your intuition. Hello, Mighty Mamas and Mamas-to-be, and Mighty Dads and Dads-to-be. Thank you, as always, for listening and for all the love you give the show. I very much appreciate all your comments and requests, and especially your reviews, since those help get the show in front of even more parents. So if you enjoy what you hear, then please consider leaving a review on iTunes, even if that's not how you usually listen to the show. Like what Lena Joe did recently, saying that it was her lovely husband who recommended the podcast to her. How cool is that? She says they are both trying to learn as much as possible before their baby arrives in December, and that they found the birth stories for the summer series invaluable. Hearing so many amazing stories made them feel a little more prepared for what could happen. Thank you, Lena, so much for your review, and I hope both you and your husband enjoy the talks with birth professionals just as much as you did the birth stories. So before we jump into the show today with Dr. Sarah Buckley about the third stage of labor, I want to give a shout out to Megan Othling, who is a birth doula in Albuquerque, New, York, New Mexico. I almost said New York. I'm so used to it. And in fact, she was the partial inspiration for this episode. You may remember her sharing about her birth stories earlier this summer and the difficulties she had with the third stages. So because there are elements of third stage that are that need to be closely monitored and this monitoring or the actions related to it can bring some anxiety into the birthing room, I wanted to talk with Dr. Sarah Buckley a bit more about it in hopes of giving you, the listener, more info and a better idea of what to expect. So... One, if you want to check out more of what Megan Othling is doing, then go to womanofvalorbirth.com. And if you want to learn more about the third stage of labor, then keep listening because we are going to jump right in. I'm thrilled to have the fabulous Dr. Sarah Buckley on the show today. Sarah is a general practitioner and family physician and author of the best-selling book, Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering. Currently, she's a full-time writer and mother of, to her four home-born children. Sarah's work critiques pregnancy, birth, and parenting from the widest possible perspectives, including the scientific, anthropological, psychological, and the experiential. 
Sarah has been sharing her unique blend of science and wisdom with parents and birth professionals internationally since 2005. She's especially interested in the hormonal physiology of childbearing and in... 2015, she published an in-depth report entitled Hormonal Physiology of Childbearing, Evidence and Implications for Women, Babies, and Maternity Care, which you can find at childbirthconnection.org. Sarah encourages all us all to be well-informed, to listen to our hearts and instincts, and to take our rightful place as the real experts in our bodies, our babies, and our families. She lives with her family on the semi-rural outskirts of Brisbane, Australia. Did I pronounce that right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's so great to have you on the show again. Welcome. Yeah, my pleasure. It's great to be here. Yeah, and thank you for the work that you're doing, you know, and, and this topic, third stage, is a really juicy one. It's a really important one as well, you know, and um, from a hormonal physiology perspective, you know, we can see um, hormonally why it's so critical for mothers and babies. Mm-hmm. Tell me why. So let's let's explain first, like, what is the third stage of labor and what happens naturally during that time? Yeah, so the third stage of labor begins when the mother pushes her baby out, births her baby. So that's the pushing stage. That's called the second stage. I mean, some people think we shouldn't put numbers on them. We should call that the pushing stage. And then the third stage, we should call the placental stage because it's all about the mother birthing the placenta. And when once that's birthed, that's the end of the so-called third stage. So, you know, um, what I say about this this time, and, and that's kind of morphs into the hour after birth, which is, again, a big topic and, and a lot to say about the hormones in the hour after birth. So we'll get into that. But the first thing to say about the third stage is it, it's kind of uneventful like there's been all this drama of the mother in labor and the movement hopefully and and then the baby coming out but but then it can look like nothing's happening but actually this time is the most critical for mother and baby because it's actually and this is kind of one reason the panic happens is because it is you know that there's these huge adjustments happening for the mother as I say she's had nine months to get ready to, to be fully pregnant and then within a few minutes she's not pregnant anymore so her body has to go through these enormous changes to stop um, shunting the blood through the placenta to the baby and seal up all those placental vessels so that's why there's a risk of, of postpartum hemorrhage at the time and for the baby obviously the baby's been in the womb what I call hotel de womb hotel of the womb where everything's on where everything's on tap for the baby like the baby's you know foods delivered and the waste are taken away and the baby's kept warm and like gently rocked and you know quite idyllic really but suddenly the baby's born and has to perform all these functions for themselves and especially the first thing is the breathing so you know, there's this incredible you know you see the baby just looks like a baby on the outside but on the inside there's all these incredible changes happening um, if any listeners have studied like midwifery or even, you know, doula or out of your own interest, there's a thing they call fetal to newborn circulation. And there's a little diagrams of where all the blood vessels go. And it looks quite different once the baby's born because before birth, uh, the majority of the baby's blood has to go, well, a, a large amount has to go to the lungs for oxygenation, about 40%. And then once the baby's born and the baby starts, sorry, just go back a step, before birth, um, the majority of the baby's blood goes to the placenta, right? Because the placenta is oxygenating the blood and it's, um, and it's you know, getting rid of the waste and t- picking up the, the nutrients. Um, and, and that's the oxygenation for the baby. But once the baby's born, that blood has to go, or a significant amount of blood has to go to the lungs. So, you know, they say in the womb, it's about 8% of blood goes to the lungs. And then after birth, about 40% of the blood goes to the lungs for oxygenation. And that's obviously the first and most critical transition that the baby makes. There's all the other things like, you know, um, making their own um, 
metabolic fuels and keeping themselves warm and liver and um, kidney functions, all that can happen a bit more slowly. But the critical one is these changes for the baby in the in the mechanism and the oxygenation of blood. So that's that's why it's such a critical time for the baby. And again, you know, it's the time the baby's most likely to die as well. So you know, like it's it's actually more surprising when you look at how complex and amazing it is that that you know 99% of babies make this transition without any problems. Um, and the other things I say about this time is it's unique. It'll never again happen for that mother and that baby. And they're in this exceptional hormonal state. They've both had you know the hormones of labor and birth that build up as labor progresses. And, and at the, during the pushing stage, the mother gets these peak levels of oxytocin, which is the birthing hormone. But at the same time, as it's you know, helping her to push her baby out, it's on giving her strong contractions. It's also actually being released from her brain. So in her brain, these adjustments are happening so that when she meets her baby for the first time, she's in this perfect state to fall in love. It's what Michelle O'Donnell calls the beginning of a great love affair. So the mother's in this perfect hormonal state. And particularly... Um, She's got major activation of her reward and pleasure centers so that when she meets her baby for the first time, she's in this, you know, this state to be, you could say, imprinted with reward and pleasure in relation to her baby. So she'll find her baby immensely rewarding, not just at the time, but ongoingly as well. And the same things are happening for the baby. Um, as far as we know, the reward and pleasure centers are getting activated. And also for the baby, you know, a baby that's been through a normal physiological labor and birth, as we as we call it, also has these periods levels of another kind of hormone called um, adrenaline nor adrenaline, the fight or flight hormones, epinephrine nor epinephrine. The baby has a surge of those hormones at the end of labor and that's what gives this baby this um, optimal transition to life outside the womb. It opens up the airways for the baby. It clears out the fluid because the baby's lungs are filled with fluid in the womb. It um, increases the surfactant, which is the lung lubricant. So all these things to help the baby's respiratory or breathing transition um, to be as optimal as possible. And the baby has this catecholamine surge and those fight or flight hormones, you know, they make us wide-eyed, right? And that's what happens for a baby born after a physiologic labor and birth. Those babies are really wide-eyed and ready to meet the mother for that eye-to-eye gaze that's so exceptional with the newborn baby. So these babies, you know, after a normal labor and birth, they're alert, they're ready for this big task that they have to do in that first hour, which is to begin breastfeeding. And they've got all this hormonal help to make that incredible transition to life outside the womb. Mm, And though you can see, yeah, those big white eyes just gazing at the world and soaking it all in and looking at their moms so close by. It is. That's it's right. gorgeous. That's right. And the babies also have, you know, as I say, it's why it's such a unique and really exceptional hormonal state because the babies also have these high levels of oxytocin. So although they're wide-eyed and alert and they have these, you could even say extreme levels of fight or flight hormones. I mean, it's enough that would almost kill an adult because they're so extreme. But the baby's also got these high levels of, of oxytocin. So the baby's also in this kind of calm and connected state. So there's these high levels of fight or flight hormones, but the baby isn't panicking. The baby actually calm and ready for connection and also has the energy that the baby needs to begin um, breastfeeding to crawl up the mother's body I hope that the listeners have heard of this called the breast crawl and you put the baby skin to skin on the mother's body the baby will 
um, or rest for a little bit and then the baby will begin crawling up the mother's body and the, the baby finds the mother's breast because it smells like amniotic fluid and the baby can see the nipple, it's like a target and the baby will massage the mother's breast actually usually first with the hand and then the baby will begin um, sucking the fist then the baby will begin suckling on the breast and all of those things actually um, not just prepare the baby for breastfeeding which is this absolutely you know in evolutionary terms critical um, moment for the baby to be able to to suckle because if the baby doesn't suckle then you know it, the baby would have died the baby would naturally die you know we've got these breast milk substitutes now but the hard wiring that we have from millions of years of evolution is you know that the so much investment in um, the baby breastfeeding successfully Mm, and I love that you say the word imprint because there is this whole first hour. There's that, you know, the golden hour, that opportunity for mom and baby to imprint all sorts of things, during that, all these things that you mentioned during that beautiful hour and to take it at, at baby's own speed you know it, it it can take an hour before baby suckles and that's fine that's yeah that's exactly right and you know a few things to say about that well first of all I just want to refer people to my report hormonal physiology of childbearing it's online with childbirth connection and there's a lot I mean, everything I've said about the hormones for the hour after birth is in that report we go through the hormones oxytocin uh, beta endorphins adrenaline and noradrenaline which are those or epinephrine noepinephrine which is the, the surge that we just talked about for the baby and then prolactin which is the hormone of breastfeeding and mothering. So we go through all of those hormones and we look at what's happening um, soon after birth in relation to all those hormone systems. And then we look at what happens when we bring in various interventions and how that can disrupt these hormonal processes. So it's all there. You can also go to my website, sarahbuckley.com, and there's a um, there's an article there on the um, the uh, that the um, leaving well enough alone, a natural approach to the third stage of labor is what it's called. And mm. um, so, so yeah, they're, they're all, everything I'm saying is backed up by science. Yes, yes. And I'm so, linking all of that in the show notes. Um, thank you. So absolutely. fantastic. Yeah. yeah so, so that hour after, the hour after birth, you know, we've really begun to understand that really in the last five to 10 years, how critical that is. And it's partly, you know, this exceptional hormonal state that the baby's alert, ready to breastfeed, the baby's calm and connected. And also, you know, those alertness, well, the fight or flight hormones, which are alertness hormones, but they're also, um, I don't want to get too complicated here, but I call them metabolically expensive. It's like we're driving down the road and suddenly a car pulls out. We get this big rush of adrenaline and we hit the brakes and our brain's going fast and our muscles are ready to act. It has all those effects on the body of using up a lot of fuels for that. So when the baby's born with this catecholamine surge, the baby's wide-eyed and alert, but also using up a lot of metabolic fuels. And once the baby comes out, you know, a lot of glucose, I mean, and actually fatty acids the newborn baby uses. But once the baby comes out and the cord's cut, the baby's not going to be able to replenish those fuels from the mother. So it's really important. And this is like, you know, the big take-home message for the hour after birth is that baby's skin to skin on the mother's body because that reduces the baby's cat a choline surge, the baby's metabolism, metabolic rate goes down and the baby can you know, can do everything they need to do with the, the fuel that they've got. And of course, it's a big job for the baby to crawl. The baby's never made those actions before. The baby's driven by this primitive, we could say, or we could say incredibly sophisticated <laughs> uh, limbic brain program that tells the baby what to do and where to go. The baby has these, um, actually the norepinephrine, the noradrenaline 
different names for the same hormone, also um, makes the baby's smell system imprintable. So in that um, few hours after birth, the baby learns the mother's smell and imprints pleasure with the mother's smell. The baby crawls up to the breast, begins suckling. The baby learns um, you know, what the mother's like from the outside. The mother's voice is familiar to the baby from the inside. So it's really, you know, it's designed to be kind of a reunion. And also that mother and baby are in this exceptional state that will, you know, optimize ongoing survival. And, you know, when the mother's had these, you know, these peak levels of these ecstatic hormones, as I call them, she's in this like totally euphoric state. My God, this is the best thing I've ever had. Like, I'm, you know, if I can do this, I can do anything. I feel like I've just climbed Mount Everest, you know. <laughs> um, you know, and that's what mother nature wants for mothers to be that fully empowered and imprinted with pleasure for their baby so that they'll have this pleasure association with the baby and they'll do all those things that in fact every mammalian mother does for her babies because you know all mammalian babies are born in this immature state and the mother has to take care of them and if she you know walked away after the birth obviously the babies wouldn't survive and you know other mammals like mice and elephants and dogs and cats they don't go to prenatal classes to tell them how to look after their babies it has to kick in straight away after birth through these hormonal changes that, that switch on what we sometimes call the maternal circuits in the mother's brain so that's all happening for the, the human mother as well and um, if you want to look that up in my report I use a phrase called biological bonding that comes from a, um, a wonderful writer called Nils Bergman and you know it's a biological process that imprints pleasure for the mother in relation to her baby and as I said it's the beginning of a great love affair it's mother nature's best shot at species survival you know it feels great but it has a, a very serious um, um, you know it, it has a very serious um, uh, sorry, um, a very important. Yeah, it's very serious and important. But you know, it has, um, it, you know, it has serious intention that it, it makes the mother um, rewarded for taking care of her baby, so the babies will survive ongoingly. You know, and it, it puts the mother and baby into this ideal state to begin breastfeeding as well. So, you know, at that stage, you know, what I sometimes say is, at birth the mother graduates as a mother, and the hour after birth there's a postgraduate education. And these hormones that we're talking about are, are only optimized if the baby is skin to skin with the mother. If the baby's taken away, the mother misses opportunities to release even higher levels of oxytocin from those interactions with the baby skin to skin, eye to eye, and especially the baby's um, breast massage. The first thing the baby does is massage the breast, and that can put the mother's oxytocin levels up even 10 times um, because of that. And that's what hel helps the mother's uterus to contract and stop bleeding. So, you know, the baby needs the mother just as much as the mother needs the baby at that mm -hmm. time. And, you know, as... Um, Nils Bergman says, you know, that the mother nature's design is zero separation, that we don't take the baby away at all. And there was a study done that even removing the baby for weighing and measuring as has traditionally been done. I mean, I was taught that when I learned obstetrics, um, you know, that interferes with the baby's ability to crawl up the mother's body and suckle effectively. And, and in this study, when the baby was exposed to drugs from the mother in labor, to opioid drugs like fentanyl, like meperidine, pethidine, that interfered with the baby as well. And when the baby had both of those separate plus the drugs, you know, uh, you know, a majority of those babies couldn't successfully get on the breast and suckle. So we, we really can put um, barriers in the way of that successful initiation of breastfeeding. And, you know, the baby knows what to do. We don't need to stuff the baby on the breast. You know, the baby has this intrinsic, you know, millions of years of evolution, hardwiring of how to attach themselves and how to optimally suckle. And as baby and mom are you know, focusing on attaching and having all these hormonal surges and having that space for themselves. Let's talk about what's happening around them because 
you know, ideally, that mom and baby would be completely undisturbed. But especially uh, in in hospital births, which encompass the majority of births, we've got what's called the active medical management of the third stage of labor that can affect all of this. So what does that active management of this stage of, of the placental stage involve? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, let's go back a step and say, you know, remember I said that this is the time the you know, the mother's most likely to bleed after the birth because she's had the placenta, which has been stuck on, you know, attached, embedded into her uterine wall and that has to separate out. And again, it's quite an incredible magical process that the placenta, the, the muscle fibers of the uterus, they contract um, as she gets these oxytocin surges after birth, but they also what's called retract, they get shorter. So the uterus shrinks down and that pull, that pull pulls in um, and seals off the placental blood vessels. And they say it's a bit like if you put a postage stamp onto a balloon and the balloon deflated, the postage stamp was peel, would peel off. So that um, shrinking of the uterus peels the placenta off the wall. And that's the kind of natural process. And it, it really relies on these peaks of oxytocin that the mother has through contact with her baby. So, you know, um, the problem that we, is that we started, you know, 50 years ago or so, um, taking the babies away. And if you take the baby away, the mother doesn't have those opportunities to release her on oxytocin. So her chance of bleeding is physiologically going to be higher. And then they discovered, oh, dear, women are bleeding. How can we stop that? And then we started thinking, well, can we give drugs to stop bleeding? And then what else can we do? So they developed this package called active management of the third stage. And it's quite interesting at present. The whole thing is very much an evolution. It was kind of standard practice about 10 years ago. And certainly in the last five years, people have started looking at it in a bit more detail. It's become less of a package you could say. But the other irony is, and, and we t I mentioned this a little bit, that some of the things that we do to women in labor and birth, some of the interventions can interfere with um with the stage of labor, with the, the third stage after the birth, they can, you know, we, we talked about them. If the mother has opiate drugs in labor, the baby can not have have it together to to suckle up and do the, do the breast crawl and suckle. Um, if the mother has had synthetic oxytocin, pitocin in labor, that interferes with the oxytocin system such that she's at increased risk of bleeding after birth. She has a cesarean, then her oxytocin system is not in the ideal state that it would be when she's had what we call physiological onset of labor when all her systems are ready and her uterus is maximally sensitive to oxytocin so not only will her labor be effective but those contractions after birth to stop bleeding will be effective so there's a lot of things we do that mean that the the mother and the baby aren't in this ideal state after the birth and so you know we some mothers and babies do need you know do need some help to stop bleeding and you know this whole active management began because we started meddling with women taking babies away doing all these things that interfered particularly with the oxytocin system and then we found more women bled and then we found we, we needed to do something to stop them from bleeding. So it's one of those kind of circular things where, you know, that's why I say leaving well enough alone. I mean, if we leave the process to run its own course, the mother's with the baby, you know, the chance of bleeding is, is markedly reduced. But if we take the baby away and do all these other things, then the chance of bleeding is increased. So kind of ironically, what's happened is that the, the chances of bleeding have increased um, over time, you know, in the last 10 years even, the, the, the bleeding has increased. So, so, um, so basically, 
that active management means giving a drug um, like um, what we call it an oxytocic drug, which means that causes uterine contractions. And it's most commonly Pitocin, synthetic oxytocin, but there are other drugs that are used. Um, and then it's, it's traditionally this active management package has included um, immediate cord clamping. So, you know, the baby comes out uh, as the baby's coming out, actually, the mother's given this injection in her thigh, which goes into her bloodstream, travels to her uterus and causes um, artificially strong contractions. And then as soon as the baby comes out, the cord's clamped immediately. And that's right now, that's always, that's been part of the traditional package. But right now, that's getting more and more controversial. And, you know, there's, you know, I've been doing these workshops for about 10 years. And, you know, there's in, in my workshops now, there's not many midwives that say that they're working in institutions where the cord's being clamped immediately. And we, I'll talk about that a bit later on. But anyway, um, the drug, the cord clamping, and the third part of it has traditionally been what we call controlled cord traction, which means pulling on the cord to, to get the placenta to come out faster than it ordinarily would because as I said there's this natural process of separation and then the mother's uterus is still contracting in, in this third stage of labour eventually which pushes the placenta out you know, usually within 15 to 30 minutes sometimes up to an hour after the birth but control cord traction means we pull a bit faster pull to get the to get the placenta out a bit faster and, and especially said, if was, you've given uh, uh, Pitocin, then the uterus is contracting faster than it would. Exactly, yeah. So you can pull, the, you know, so you, the, the placenta will separate earlier. You can pull the placenta out earlier, you know, if you want to. But there's also <laughs> but, you know, the risk, isn't it, that they're trying to get it or try, one of the reasons that there's cord traction because you try to get it out as quick as possible because the uterus is contracting faster than it would normally. So it, it could get entrapped. Yes, that's true. It, 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 well, yes, to some extent. There, mm -hmm. there are some studies that show an increased risk of placenta retention when you use these drugs. That's true. It's not dramatically increased. But, uh, um, yeah, but the other thing is, you know, there, as you say, there's this kind of hurry because once the placenta comes out, the third stage is over and the clock stops ticking, if you like. So, you know, people say we need to pull the placenta out so that the, the, the third stage will be over and the mother's at lower risk. But, you know, um, as I said, the problem is with the, the research, if we look at it, it's kind of looked at this thing as a whole. But now we're starting to kind of look at the individual components of it. And if you look at um, at uh, controlled cord traction as an individual component, it doesn't actually help all that much um, when, it, when, a, when if the drug's been given, the adding in controlled cord traction is not doesn't actually prevent bleeding. Um, it's probably the drug that that prevents bleeding in circumstances where it, you know, where women are at higher risk. So yeah, so this you know we're kind of in in this state of change at the moment. So people are saying, well, we don't want to clamp the baby's cord early because the problem is when we do that, you know, or, or just maybe I'll just go back a step and talk a bit about um, the the natural physiologic processes of the. Uh, of the third stage or the hour after birth, really. So, so what's happening is the baby in the womb, as I said, it's a hotel de womb, and the, 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 you know all these things are done for the baby, and they're basically done by the placenta. So the placenta delivers the you know the glucose and the fuels to the baby. It takes away the waste. It processes toxins like the liver does. It excretes like the kidney does. Um, it oxygenates the blood. It keeps the baby warm by transferring. Um, but keeps the baby at the right temperature by transferring heat one way or the other. So once the baby comes out, the baby has to do all those things for themselves. So in the womb, those organs, which is the kidney, the liver, the skin, the gut and the lungs, are not really active. They're not doing much. They don't have much of a blood supply. The blood vessels inside those organs are kind of shut down. There's not a lot of visit visiting happening, you could say, right? Not a lot of activity there. And then once the baby's born and the babies have to, um, the baby has to perform all those functions for themselves, all those organ systems 
systems need more blood than was previously in the baby's body. So the baby gets what we call a placental transfusion. And um, it would be easier if I had a picture there, but if you imagine the baby in the womb, there's the baby and then there's the cord and the, and the blood goes from the baby through the cord to the placenta where all these magical things happen and then back through the umbilical veins to the baby. So the, the baby circulation is all the blood in the baby's body plus 15 mils of blood in the cord plus the blood in the placenta, which is about a third of the baby's blood volume at any time. So when the baby comes out, the baby's out, but the placenta's still inside the mother. Yeah, the cord's still intact. The still blood can flow both ways. And then the mother's uterus starts contracting. It put, squeezes the placenta and that pushes blood to the baby. And then in between contractions, the mother's placenta, the mother's uterus relaxes and no blood is transferred to the baby. And blood can actually even go from the baby back to the placenta. So through this third stage of labor, there's this kind of stepwise motion of blood being squeezed from the placenta to the baby and then a bit of a rest or even the even going backwards, going back to the placenta. And eventually through this kind of, you know, two steps forward, one step back, you end up with about 100 mils of extra blood. That's um. It's a little under half a cup of blood for the baby um, that, that, that's come from the placenta, that's been stored in the placenta as the baby's being born. It's the baby's own blood, but it's, um, it's more blood than the baby had just in the body during, during um, time in the womb, if that makes sense to you. Is that making mm-hmm. sense? Yes, it is. Okay, so, then, so this placental transfusion then fills up all those organ systems that suddenly have to work. So it's extra blood for the lungs, it's extra blood for the kidneys, the skin, the gut and the liver. So all of those organs have got this blood that they need. So the problem is if we clamp the cord straight away, the baby misses out on at least some and maybe almost all of that 100 mils of blood. And the baby's total blood volume at that time is around 300 mils. So it can be up to a third of the baby's blood volume that the baby doesn't get if we clamp the cord straight away. And you know the, the most influential studies in this area, have been shot, are actually about iron because that 100 mils of blood has a lot of iron in it. It has um, the equivalent of iron of 100 liters of breast milk. So, because um, so you know, when, when the baby doesn't get that iron, the baby misses out on those iron stores. The baby can even become anemic. So, the studies now are showing that delayed cord clamping, or so-called delayed cord clamping, um, increases the baby's iron stores and reduces the baby's risk of anemia. And in fact, one study just showed that that benefits the babies, especially boys. Up to age four, they have better um, brain development, but a neurodevelopmental outcome up to age four. So that's really that those studies are are really compelling now. So mm-hmm. you know the, the idea of immediate core clamping has really, hopefully, you know, for, for for care providers, gone off the agenda. So we're we're doing more delayed cord clamping. Yeah, so and I think that of... one's definitely taking hold. And if listeners want to know a lot more about that, I do have a, a podcast episode with Dr. Mark Sloan specifically about delayed cord clamping. So they can dig deep in that. Um, and, and frankly, it's not that long. They're just waiting three to five minutes. Well, in fact, some of the studies, you know, that showed a benefit, they delayed cord clamping by 30 seconds. And even that gives a benefit because mm, I don't want to make things too complicated, but basically what happens is as as the baby comes down in those last few pushes, the blood, the cord gets a little bit squashed and blood actually pulls in the placenta. So as soon as the baby comes out, there's this big rush of 60 to 70 mils of blood. So even waiting a few, you know, 30 seconds, the baby can get quite a significant amount of extra blood. And then when the baby takes a breath, that helps blood to come in as well. And, um, you know, it, it, as you say, the process takes three to five minutes. It's very, 
variable. And some babies have a bigger placental transfusion, even up to 150 mils. Some babies have a smaller, even 50 mils. But, you know, like as adults, <laughs> if, you know, if we were to measure our blood volume, it would be different in everyone because we all have different anatomy and different requirements. So, you know, this process of placental transfusion allows the baby to get the right blood volume that works for them. So there's some kind of, we don't really understand it, but there's some process in there that has the baby choose the right amount of placental transfusion for themselves. You know, we, we don't know, like clamping the cord, we disallow that process. The baby can't, you know, choose the right blood volume for themselves and are almost inevitably going to end up with a lower blood volume. And all those nutrients, you know, the iron we talked about, there's also the stem cells that people, everyone wants to get their hands on through cord blood banking, you know, but they're actually designed to... Um, migrate to the baby's bone marrow and form all these blood-making cells. So we don't even know what the consequences might be for the baby of missing all those blood-forming cells with the placental transfusion, all those stem cells. And it has lots of iron in it. It has lots of red cells to carry oxygen in those early minutes after birth um, and, you know, and hours and days. So you know, there's a lot of goodness in there. And um, you know, the idea of, of wasting that 100 mils is really you know, anathema to Mother Nature. She's worked so hard to make that blood and you know, for the yeah. baby. And to waste that blood is, is is criminal, really. It's, you know, terrible. Absolutely. And we're going to take a quick break right now. But when we come back, I want to talk about mom's side of things and and her hemorrhaging and how quickly this really, this how urgent is this and how quickly does everything needs to move? Because I find that that puts a lot of tension in the room that can affect a bit of how you know, her, her oxytocin levels and all those great things that we're trying to <laughs> encourage. So we'll be right back. Did you know that even though most expectant moms plan to breastfeed, the majority aren't really adequately prepared to get off to a good start? That is why world-renowned breastfeeding experts Dr. Teresa Nesbitt and Nancy Moorbacher have created their fabulous Quick Start video that gives you everything you need to know to get started with natural breastfeeding. Best of all, it's free. How awesome is that? Through their Quick Start video, you'll learn a simple technique that prevents nipple pain. You'll also find about the simplest way to help a newborn latch, as well as the best way to produce enough milk for your baby. These things will set you well on your way to a blissful breastfeeding relationship. And did I mention that it's free? Go watch the quick start video to natural breastfeeding at naturalbreastfeeding.com. And we are back. And just before the break, I was, ask, I was talking about asking you about mom's side of things. How urgent is it? for her to, you know, get this placenta out and and things to move quickly. Yeah, well, there's a lot of ways we can understand this time from the mother's perspective. I mean, as I said, she's had nine months to get used to being fully pregnant and then within a few minutes she's not pregnant anymore. So there's all these elaborate changes happening inside her uterus to seal up those placental blood vessels to stop bleeding. And she needs the baby for that because having the baby skin to skin, eye to eye, releases oxytocin, which is the hormone that makes the uterus contract, and especially the baby's pre-breastfeeding behavior. So the 
the when the baby massages the mother's nipple, her oxytocin levels can increase even ten times. You know, which is going to help to contract her uterus and stop her bleeding and save her life as well. So that's kind of Mother Nature's superb design, you could say. But we we did talk about how some interventions can interfere with this process, including drugs that the mother takes in labour, particularly synthetic oxytocin, including drugs that get through to the baby. Basically, all drugs get through to the baby, by the way. But you know that can interfere with the baby's ability to do the breast call and to self-attach. So you know there's a lot of ways that we're kind of interfering with it. But as you as you say, you know, there's a lot of panic around this time, and you know it can feel like every mother's on the edge of hemorrhaging. But that's not the case, you know. And and what we're finding is since I started doing this writing about this stuff um, ten years ago, we're really getting more studies showing that if if we put the mother's the baby's skin to skin on the mother, and especially we allow the initiation of breastfeeding, you know the chances of hemorrhage are really significantly lower. Um, this is actually an Australian study that showed that you know that, that when mothers had both skin to skin and breastfeeding, um, and this is a general population which includes some of those high risk mothers, their chance of having a hemorrhage was ten percent, and when the mothers had none of those things, their risk was thirty percent. So you can really be very effective, you know, physiologically of of the those making the most of Mother Nature's superb design, as I call it, and the mother's own oxytocin release. And of course, the other problem is, you know, the mother is in this, you know. Um, heightened hormonal state for that time after birth and she's very tuned into her baby and you know, one of the worst things you could do is take her baby away because that's going to increase her anxiety and if she has extra anxiety then that makes the fight or flight hormones are catecholamines which interfere again with this whole oxytocin system that, that causes a uterus to contract so there's a lot of things that we do that interference that you talk about that panic which is kind of contagious as well that can impact the mother as well so you know we're getting more and more studies showing that if the mother's had an undisturbed birth and hasn't had these hormonal disruptions during labor and birth that she's safer having the skin-to-skin contact and breastfeeding and maybe probably safer than having the drugs as well you know, we, we, we beginning to get some of that research but we don't have it all at the moment um so yeah so that's so why it's, it's hard to give like a, a you know a, a general figure of what the risk of postpartum hemorrhage is because it really depends on the mother's history and, and certainly if she's had some of those interventions particularly synthetic oxytocin pitocin and labor she does need some help to stop bleeding afterwards because it's interfered with her oxytocin system she's had a cesarean she's in a different category as well if the baby isn't with her she's probably in a different category as well so you know it's, it's a little bit hard to know but you know mm-hmm. in, in kind of large studies of physiological birth of home birth you know the risk of, of hemorrhage is really you know pretty low like under five percent and then some of them under two percent mm-hmm. and so in terms of that package of, of of the active management of third stage of labor like is it conducive to have to give pitocin to all moms or what is there a benefit to having a wait and see approach yeah, well, that's yeah. So, so it's been it's the active management has been used as what we call prophylaxis, preventative treatment, or sometimes called expectant treatment. So we give it to all mothers because we know some of them are going to have a hemorrhage, but we can't figure out. Well, we haven't been able to figure out which one, so we'll just give it to everyone to prevent hemorrhage. And um, so that's been the the try. The, that's been the kind of idea. But you know, I think now we're beginning to get more understanding about what increases the risk of hemorrhage and and what doesn't increase the risk of hemorrhage. So there are more studies, as I said, showing that following a physiologic labor and birth, that the chance of hemorrhage is low. So the need for this kind of 
prophylaxis of preventative treatment is low. So as I said, you know, two and a half to five percent risk of postpartum hemorrhage in a home birth situation. You know, are you going to give 97 women out of 100 these drugs um, to prevent that, that small number? And, you know, the other approach, as you say, is to use it um, uh, as a treatment. You know, if the mother begins to bleed, then you may have a, you know, a, a low threshold or a big threshold um, for giving these drugs. And, and the other thing to say is that, you know, it, it, it depends on the population that you're in because in a healthy, well-nourished population like most Western women, you know, most of us, or all of us, I would say, can afford to lose 500 mils, which is how we how we categorize postpartum hemorrhage. It's a little it's a little bit under a pint, isn't it? So, you know, you we go along and we donate a pint of blood. You know, we get tea and cookies and but if we lose a pint of blood, you know, after birth, all all hell breaks loose. But you know, and women and, and pregnant women have an extra blood volume to perfuse the placenta to, um for the baby. So, you know, five hundred mils of blood is not a problem for the vast majority of healthy Western women. I mean, if, for women who are poorly nourished and, and are already anemic, yes, that is significant. So, you know, really, I, I think it's, you know, it, it depends on the individual. Again, you can't categorize it, but most healthy women would have, you know, no problems losing um, 500 mils, and, you know, for some women up to a litre is not problematic. So some of these studies only measure, you know, that the higher degrees of hemorrhage, which is over a litre. And again, the, the chance of those is is very low. So, you know, we're going to give everyone these drugs because, you know, the, the other thing to say is that you know, these these drugs have potential side effects, and one of the the problems is that you know we talked about how the oxytocin drugs, the pitocin, usually is given into the mother's thigh as the baby's being born. So even if we clamp the cord straight away, there's a few minutes there between when the baby comes out and when the cord's clamped. And at that time, this drug can go into the baby's um, into the mother's bloodstream and cross to the baby, and it's actually a very high dose of of synthetic oxytocin, and animal studies show that that interferes with the baby's ox- with the offspring. Ox- oxytocin system through to adulthood so could that happen for human babies we haven't really done that research and and could it interfere with a mum's oxytocin system um, as well so there's some studies showing that when women receive synthetic oxytocin in labor that they have more anxiety and depression after birth but what about this single you know high um, high dose um, oxytocin after birth could that interfere with the mother's system and you know, the other thing is some of the other drugs that we give like ergometrin uh, what's it called I think it's called ergonavine in the US um, th- you know, those drugs actually counteract prolactin which is the breastfeeding hormone and prostaglandins are being used and they counteract prolactin as well so you know we've got to think about what are the impacts for the mother in the longer term what are the impacts for the baby could it have impacts on breastfeeding so it's you know it's not an intervention that well no intervention is 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 without risk every intervention has a risk but we haven't even begun to look at what the possible risks of this intervention might be in the longer term for mothers and babies so you know everything is about weighing risks and benefits and certainly you know if a woman's at higher risk of bleeding because she's had synthetic oxytocin in labor or for other reasons you know some women do have a a greater tendency to bleed if she's had a previous history you know then it's a conversation to have with her care provider and as you say the choice is between do you do it expectantly to prevent it or do you have like a low threshold and do it if if you see some signs of bleeding and and again you would do everything that you can to get that mother and baby together to make the most of the natural system of oxytocin skin to skin breast crawl breastfeeding you know to reduce the chance of of um to 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 optimize the mother's own protective systems mm-hmm. and i think it's important for moms to to you know know the steps of what they may be going through so that it's not and to know that at that time providers tend to be more on on alert because this is a situation where 
um, you just want to be on top of it. But to also know that that doesn't necessarily mean that them having that attitude doesn't mean that something's wrong. That's right. And, you know, it's a really skill. It's a skill of a healthcare provider to be, you know, what watchful expectancy it's called. You know, you want to, to be alert and aware of what's going on, but you also don't want to be panicky either because, as we said, that's contagious. And you're talking about the experience for the for the, um, the mum as well. You know, it's contagious to be in a room full of people that are anxious and that's not good for her hormonal physiology either. So, you know, it really is a balance. And, you know, I want to really promote the... Um, the work that midwives do. I mean, I think midwives generally have a nice balance there. And, and it's, you know, maybe you could say it's easy for them because midwives generally work with a lower risk population and the chance of bleeding is lower, you know, whereas, you know, OBs or obstetricians tend to work with high risk populations. And if they're not high risk when they when they start, they are by the time you've had all the interventions, <laughs> particularly synthetic oxytocin. So, you know, it's true that the risk of bleeding is higher and mm. you do have to be on the alert. But But as you say, it's really about not not allowing that um, that concern to be contagious, you know. Yeah. What about um, that the quote unquote uterine massage? Because that's the worst name for it. Because it's not feels nothing like a massage. <laughs> the uterine yeah. massage that's done there around every fifteen minutes for an hour and a half or two hours after the baby's born. Well, I guess there's two kind of sides to uterine massage. I mean, what you want to know as a care provider, you want to know that the woman's uterus is doing what it should be doing, which is contracting and retracting. It's getting smaller, yeah, and it's a little bit firm because, you know, the muscle fibers are binding together and sealing off those placental vessels. And you know if, you know, if her uterus is nice and contracted after the birth, the chance of her bleeding is low. And, you know, if you kind of irritate the uterus by rubbing it, you can make it contract. And um, so, you know, care providers will often have a feel of the woman's uterus after the birth and just get a sense is it nice and firm or is it kind of not contracting at all is it kind of boggy there's <laughs> a kind of boggy feeling that a woman's uterus can have after birth that would put you again on alert so there's a kind of ascertainment aspect of of touching the uterus and then there's the intervention of uterine massage and as I said it does it does irritate the uterus it does cause the uterus contract it can be painful at that time it's not it's, it's an interference it's an intervention you know you've got to kind of um, and it interferes with that special time between the mother and baby. So, you know, we've got to figure out, is it worth it? And at the moment, although it, it is actually advocated by the World Health Organization and it's found its way onto the new kind of active management protocol, so instead of the immediate core clamping that the World Health Organization and some of the major international organizations are recommending an oxytocic drug, which can be given later. They're recommended delay and they're recommending delayed core clamping. And they're also recommending um, uterine massage. And, you know, in some situations it may be helpful, but we don't actually, you know, surprisingly, though it's traditional, it's been done for a long time, we don't actually have a lot of, you know, high quality studies about its effectiveness by itself without the other um, interventions. So kind of, you could say the jury's out a little bit. It, it probably does help. I mean, studies show that it helps as part of that package, but whether it helps by itself, we don't really know. And again, you know, it's so, you know, you, everything, you know, everything in childbirth or everything in healthcare really should be individualized to that unique mother and baby rather than one size fits all. And, you know, is that mother, if that mother and baby are at risk, then maybe, you know, it's a, it's an opportunity for an informed decision making, an informed choice conversation. Like, you know, the mother might say, well, you know, okay, well, you can massage my uterus. I won't have the drugs, but you can massage my uterus, see how we're going. And, you know, if you think I need it, you could give me the oxytocin, you could give me the pitocin. And, you know, I'd rather have the uterine massage than have the drug. I mean, it's kind of one possible, ineffective, 
likely effective intervention. But as I said, we don't have all the evidence for that at the mm. moment. And it's interesting because of all the four, you know, the uh, of active management of labor, so the um, giving of Pitocin, the immediate cord clamping, and the uh, cord traction, and then the uterine massage, that's the one that I see most nobody's, you know, it's assumed routine that nobody even asks or even considers that that is an option to not being done. Like the cord caption and, you know, definitely the cord clamping being delayed is very accepted now. And the Pitocin, there's, there, I can see providers saying, well, let's wait and see more. But with the uterine massage, what I see is that that's not even an argument, a, a discussion. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think it does. You know, there, there's certainly a place for an informed choice discussion around that. Although, as I said, you know, the evidence, um, well, the best evidence, which is the Cochrane database, mm-hmm. doesn't show that it's, you know, that it's, well, that doesn't have studies to see whether it's helpful by itself or not really. Yeah. So going back to the baby now, as baby is being born, immediately after he, she comes out, there's this concern, you know, their providers are concerned about mom's hemorrhaging and then they're concerned about babies giving that first loud cry. And there seems to be a lot of vigorous rubbing and trying to activate. <laughs> it's like activate yeah. the baby so that they, we know that baby's fine. How, what's the evidence on that? How necessary is that? Well, you see, it, 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 it depends on the situation really because as we talked about, like the natural, through a natural physiologic labor and birth um, towards the end of labor and the baby gets a surge of adrenaline and noradrenaline, catecholamine surge and it happens because um, of the long, strong, close together contractions and it also happens because the baby's head's come low in the mother's pelvis and it's getting some pressure on it. So both of those things lead to an outpouring of these hormones and when the baby has this catecholamine surge, the baby is wide-eyed and alert at birth you know you can look at the baby and say that baby's awake you know you know I'm sure you know what I mean right mm-hmm. um, but you know the trouble is if the mother's been exposed to drugs in labor then the, ba- then the baby has been exposed to drugs and the baby might not be in that condition so you know care providers have kind of got got a bit concerned I think really about you know to, to ascertain what the situation is for the baby and for some reason I don't understand maybe it comes from actually older times when women were heavily drugged um, in labor and birth and the babies did come out very drugged and you had to stimulate the baby to get them to breathe. You know, maybe that's kind of the history of it. But there is this kind of entrenched practice of over, you know, of, of over concern for the baby and thinking the baby has to cry or it has to be stimulated in some way. And that's not true for a baby following a physiologic labour and birth. You know, the baby can come out not cry at all, but be very alert. The baby's wide-eyed. The baby's looking around. It's obvious. You know, and. Um, we do assess the baby's you know, well-being at birth. We look at the baby's appearance, look at the baby's heart rate, look at the baby's responsiveness, um, you know, uh, look at the baby's respiratory rate to see you know, what condition the baby's in. And all of those things also give us that same kind of information. So you know, from a, the perspective of physiologic birth, of gentle birth, you know, those things are really an over – um, you know, an overreaction and over concern about the baby. And you know, the other thing, you know, to, to think about, and this is, it's, it's always surprises me that this is such a radical thought, but, you know, what is the experience for the baby? You know, you can look at these, I look at YouTube videos sometimes of birth, and everyone in the room is smiling except the baby, and the baby's distressed and crying, but we don't see it. You know, the babies aren't meant to be distressed and crying at birth. You know, the baby has the same ecstatic hormones a mother has. It's meant to be a good experience for the birth. And when you have this, 
gentle circumstance and physiologic labor and birth, the baby come out, the babies come out and you can tell they're happy. They're alert, they're wide-eyed, they're looking around, you know, but they're not distressed. And we don't need to make babies distressed to know that they're okay after birth. And I think it's I think it's it's a harmful thing to do. I think it sets up a, a bad imprint for the baby. You know, there's a whole school called pre and perinatal psychology you know which looks at the experience for the baby and there's you know under hypnosis people can remember their experience of birth it's stored away in our brain somewhere and you know if we want to have a you know a gentle imprint of, of life that life is a good experience life is positive life is gentle then when we treat our babies gently from the very beginning and we wouldn't do those kind of things that you're talking about mm. so i think those are like next frontiers that need to be talked about more and more so that entrenched practices go by the by side. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and also the other thing is, you know, just hormonally, you know, we want the baby to settle down. We want the baby's fight or flight hormones to get reduced straight away after birth to, you know, to reduce the, you know, the, the use of metabolic fuels to calm the baby down, to soothe the baby. So that's why, you know, the baby's designed to come out and go straight on the mother, skin to skin. The baby's not designed to be taken anywhere, you know, and that puts the baby in the ideal hormonal situation to begin breastfeeding and to start making this um, critical attachment to the mother as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's so important. It should be calm and beautiful for everybody. So that's why I'd like for listeners to know a bit of what to expect if they're having a hospital birth, because these tend to be the things that they will encounter. Um, and maybe to have a discussion with their care providers ahead of time. Like, what, what do you think are some suggestions of what they could advocate for ahead of time? Okay, well, I do have a list, <laughs> a bit of a list, because this is something get, that, that I get asked about in relation to cord clamping. So I have a um, some suggestions for cord clamping. So the ideal, if you think about the way it happens in nature or other mammals or what we would do if we didn't have, had never invented a cord clamp, <laughs> cords are very kind of slippery and slimy, and it's actually really hard to pull on them, and it's hard, quite hard to clamp them as well. So you know, the natural process is that nothing's done until the placenta comes out. That's physiologic, you know, um, third stage. We don't do anything to the cord until the placenta comes out. And that's what other animals do as well. And, you know, for humans, we can cut the cord at that stage. You know, there's various things you can do. You can do lotus birth where you don't cut the cord at all. Um, in some situations, actually, there's a, um, a trend to do burning of the cord. Have you, do you know that one? Where mm, you, yes. Go yeah, and that's, explain that, it, yeah. Yeah, and that's a great thing to do, particularly in a low-resource setting because, you know, to cut the cord, you need to have clean and sterile scissors because, you know, you can introduce infections. And in some situations where, you know, people are giving birth low to the ground, you could say, you know, there's there's organisms like tetanus in the ground and, and you can actually transmit tetanus to the baby by cutting the cord with um, unclean scissors. So burning is another way of doing it. And if you look up the work of Robin Lim, L-I-M, um, she, she makes these little wooden boxes boxes where you can string the cord but you know across and then have a candle in the middle that burns through the cord so that's a that's an, an, an easy thing to do as well you know like a low technology and of course you don't have to cut the cord there's no reason to cut the cord you can leave the baby attached to the placenta as long or as short as you like after that so that's leave that's physio physiology from my perspective um, a lot of people you know the next best thing would be to clamp the cord when the baby's cord stops pulsating the pulsation, all that means actually is that the, the cord vessels are still open enough to transmit the, the heart, the, 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 the pushing of the blood from the baby's heart. So it means the cord 
blood vessels haven't closed up. And there can still be transmission of blood in both directions, actually, even after our pulsations have stopped. But that's that, that's a nice gentle alternative is to wait until the babe, the pulsation cease and then cut, the, then cut the cord. You know, and if you look carefully and pay attention, and there's some great, actually, some great pictures online, you can actually see the cord. You can see a firm pulsating cord with the blood going through. And you can see as the blood volume going through the cord decreases and you can see the, the cord gets to be kind of a flat ribbon when all the blood stopped going mm-hmm. in either direction. So, it's you know, like you a can... fireman's, uh, a fire person's hose. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You can so you can you know you can look at it that and you can guess that there's no blood going. You can't be certain about that because you know if you look at the some of the studies they do show even after pulsation ceases there there can be blood passing in either direction. So um, another thing is to get out the stopwatch and clamp at three minutes because by three minutes the majority of all that blood's gone through. Um, and some studies have used that as as a timing. Some studies have used one minute or even thirty seconds as we talked about. At thirty seconds the baby's going to get significantly more blood then they'd get at zero because there's a, like a 60 to 70 mil sort of bolus that comes through straight after birth. But of course, that can also go back. That, that can go back into the, the placenta as well. So that's better than nothing. And, and sometimes, particularly, you know, some care providers are, are totally concerned about any of those options. So I say, well, you know, wait until the baby's taken a first breath. And there are studies showing better outcomes when babies breathed before the cord is clamped. And there's various physiological reasons for that. And I also say to parents, if you're having difficulty, you know, negotiating these things with your care provider, then I suggest that you have a spiritual practice around cord clamping and you might want to say prayers over the baby until the cords clamp, before the cords clamped and the prayers could take a very long time. <laughs> it's, it's a very well timed three minute prayer. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So yeah, so that, that's a cord clamping. And of course, the other thing that we talked about that's so important for the mother's hormones after the birth and the baby's hormones after the birth is that baby goes straight on the mother's skin to skin and that the baby has an uninterrupted ability. You know, if you want to do it, it's an option, but it's really, you know, mother nature's superb design that the baby crawls up and finds the breast. And I think what's really ideal about that, not just the hormones, but the baby actually initiates breastfeeding. It's the baby that breastfeeds, not the mum. And then the baby gets the ideal suckle, and um, yeah, I think I think there's no better way to initiate breastfeeding than the baby initiating it themselves. So skin to skin with opportunities to breastfeed, and as you say, you know, every baby's different. Some babies are roaring and ready to go, and some babies it can take 45 minutes to an hour before they're ready to to actually suckle. But those pre-breastfeeding behaviours are what really matters for getting the mother's oxytocin going. So skin to skin, liberal opportunities for breastfeeding, and no separation. You know, and that's kind of in capital letters, um, as Nils Bergman says, you know, we, there's no reason to separate a healthy mother and baby. And, you know, and, and, and that might take a little bit of negotiation too, because everybody wants to take the baby off and weigh it and et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, you don't need to know the weight of the baby. Honestly, it's much more important that that hour is such a unique and exceptional and critical hour that I'd really encourage people to not do those things. And by the way, the other the other thing, you know, for this day and age is, you know, don't start making phone calls. Give yourself an hour. You know, don't take pictures. Don't make phone calls. It's a really special, sacred time. And, you know, it's exceptional hormonally. You never get that time again. And um, I'll just share an anecdote, actually. It was a story I read in a, in a magazine of a mum who had a third baby at home. And... 
um, when the baby came out, the you know the husband came in, the kids came in, everyone started ringing up, and um, she said, "I went out of labor because this third stage is still labor. She's still full of hormones, and the placenta didn't come out, and she she transferred to hospital for a, a removal of the placenta, a manual removal, which is not an is quite a significant intervention. So you know to really be respectful of that hormonal situation that optimizes not just mothers and babies' hormonal physiology, but optimizes the placenta coming out as well, and you don't want to interfere with that that's critical if the placenta doesn't come out they can put you at risk of hemorrhage as well so they you know that they're allowing nature to take its course and optimizing and undisturbing and not interfering with it you know is really critical for the mothers and for the babies so the more that you can physiology that you can negotiate with your care providers and again I'm going to give a plug for midwives because you know midwives are much more amenable they know this stuff they trust you know they trust normal physiology because they see it every day and you know I think some of the reasons that that um, doctors, physicians, obstetricians, OBs don't trust it is because they don't often see it because you know we kind of we start interfering with it and then we don't see the normal because we've interfered with it and then we've got to interfere with it again to protect ourselves from the effects of the other interference. So you know, as I say, leaving well enough alone is particularly important in this time after after birth. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and no, and talk to your care provider about what to expect from them during this third stage and then see what can be negotiated or not but don't let it become a surprise because that surprise can affect your hormones as well when you're like you know somebody's massaging your uterus and you weren't expecting it that's exactly right and it's also you know the other thing is this process of informed choice um, as we say, is is a, an ongoing process, and it's also a very, you could say, enlightening process. So when you start to talk to your care provider about these kind of things, you know, you can see how open are they to your your wishes, you know, and how likely are you to get what you want in labour and birth. And to be honest, if you know, if it looks like you're not going to get what you want, you need to reconsider your care provider because if they're not willing to take your wishes into account in this, what about during labour and birth? Are they going to also have their own set agenda that's not flexible? So it's it's a really could say you know it's a, it's a critical conversation to have at the, um, around the time after birth, and you can kind of gauge your your care provider's flexibility and adaptability and respect for your wishes, and you know you can look at your options if, if you don't if you're not finding that. Mm-hmm. Sarah, thank you so so much for this fantastic talk today. What if listeners want to follow up with you or follow what you're doing or just connect? How can they do that? Beautiful. Well, I have um, a website called sarahbuckley.com. And as I said, there's a um, an older version of this article or chapter called Leaving Well Enough Alone, Natural Perspectives on the Third Stage of Labor. That's from 2005. Um, I've also got a book. My book, Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering, has an updated chapter. And I'm always... Um, looking at this information and updating it again. So on my website and my web shop, there's also a DVD called Undisturbed Birth. And it has a whole, it has me, you can see me talking and see my PowerPoint slides of a whole hour presentation about um, the time after birth. And um, it's kind of aimed at care providers, but I do always make my things um, understandable for women as well. So if you want to know all about it, that's a great resource, Undisturbed Birth DVD. And I also have a membership site called Gentle Natural Birth. And... I have some programs for women. I haven't got to the late pregnancy programs yet. There's a great early pregnancy program called Gentle Natural Birth. And we also have programs for care providers. And that same video that's on my um, 
uh, Undisturbed Earth Birth DVD is available on that membership website. So you can go in there as a gentle natural birth professional member. You, you can join up as a parent as well. I've had parents join up that want to know all this kind of meaty information about things. And you can see there's videos on cord clamping, there's videos on cord blood banking, and there's a whole video on the third stage, the active management, everything we've talked about is, um, is available at my Gentle Natural Birth Professionals um, membership website. Fantastic. And I will put links to that so that people can find it on the show notes at birthful.com. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for this conversation. And yeah, look, all the best and, and many blessings to, to the moms and dads and families out there. And, you know, it's really such a great opportunity to think about these things and make sure that you make an informed choice for um, yourself, your baby and your family. Thank you so, so much. I hope to talk to you again not too far in the future. Thank you very much. Okay, bye. Mighty Mamas, I love to hear from you. So share with me your thoughts. And if there's a certain topic you'd like to know more about, let me know. Stay in touch by following Birthful on Facebook or Twitter or subscribe at birthful.com. And if you're pregnant, don't forget to grab my Birth Partners Ultimate Labor Support Toolkit at birthful.com slash toolkit. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to another maternity pro to inform your intuition here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, Mighty One. Did you know that if you started listening to one birthful episode per day at the start of your pregnancy, your baby would be about three months old before you got through all of them? That is so much birthful. So to ease us into the summer and to help you catch up on your listening, we're going back to releasing one episode per week instead of two. Now you know.